if you see him around, please say hi to him. Uh, and he is super in favor of us being here. He's really on our side. So that was really encouraging uh, that we're just developing a good relationship there. I got to teach it before we get going. I got to tell you a little secret about Mita Palooza. Uh, Pastor Rick and I somehow, you might remember, every contestant was assigned a letter and you voted for your favorite letter. Pastor Rick and I somehow ended up with the same letter and we still didn't win. So speaking of get better, <laughs> speaking of get better, uh, so yeah, so there was that. Uh, I'm not discouraged at all, though. Don't worry about it. Uh, today, what I want to do is I want to start a conversation that will go over the next few weeks uh, about everyone's favorite subject, money. Uh, yes, thank you. One person is, uh, is excited. But more than that, it's, it's about money, but it's also about hope. Um, it's about the future, and it started for me, started turning in my head years ago when I was in college. Uh, I had a mentor who was an administrator at the college that I went to, who uh, him and his wife, they went out of their way to mentor students while they were there. His wife spent a lot of time on the campus, and uh, I remember once we were in a room, there was about a dozen of us students uh, and him, and his name was Joe, uh, still is actually, he's kept the same name, uh, and he said this to us. He said, don't ever let your financial situation dictate what God can or can't call you to. And what he meant by that was, don't do things like let yourself be so indebted that if God called you to go do something else, you couldn't leave because you were stuck. Or conversely, don't, when things are going well, don't let yourself be so in love with the paycheck that if God had this other opportunity he wanted to call you to, you couldn't go because you were just stuck right here with this. Don't let money be the factor that determines whether or not you can respond to God's call. And he had a lot more to say about it, but the bottom line for us here today is that money is a huge factor in all of our lives. It influences us on a daily basis, whether you have a ton of it or you have way less of it than you need or think you need. Uh, money influences all of our decision-making. It has power over the way we act. Money will influence probably somewhere in the neighborhood of the next five generations of your family will be influenced by your attitude about money, how you treat money, how you, uh, how you view it. Uh, it's just a huge, a huge factor. Uh, and so uh, let's do a quick test. I'm going to do a quick twist, test just to see if money is a significant factor in your life. Uh, don't raise your hand when I answer the questions. You can keep those on the inside, okay? This is, this is the time to, to keep it on the inside. Uh, have you ever been in debt? We'll start with that one. Have you maybe a credit card or uh, an auto loan or a student loan or any kind of debt? Uh, have you ever been in debt? Uh, have you ever owed someone money? Not a, not a company, not a bank, but you owed someone money. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be honest, like the chicken wings at their barbecue taste different when you know you owe them money, don't they? You ever, you ever been there? Uh, it's just not as pleasant of an experience. Uh, have you ever made a decision about your education on the basis of money? I'd really love to go to school and learn how to do this, but it's going to cost that. Have you ever made a decision like that? Uh, I read an article in the New York Times recently about a guy who graduated from college with $240,000 in student loans. Now, uh, there's a whole lot of stupid mixed in there. I'm not saying he's the victim here, uh, but he had tried for years to pay it off, and he finally realized, this is going to hang over me for the rest of my life. I'm never going to pay it off. Um, a lot of us can understand what it's like to have student debt. What about medical expenses? Have you ever gotten a medical bill? 
that you read the bottom of the page and you saw the number and it gave you like immediate panic. Uh, according to CNBC, uh, I think it's a fairly well-known statistic, about two-thirds of all bankruptcies in America are the result of medical expenses. So those are some of the negatives, but what about on the other side? Have you ever been the person who felt like everyone's depending on me for money? Uh, maybe it wasn't that you were short on it, but it was that everyone was coming to you for it. Uh, or maybe just other people were counting on you. Brandy and I have this friend, her name's Terry. She's in her 60s uh, now. And we both respect Terry probably as much or more than we respect anyone else on the planet. Uh, here's Terry's story. She has five kids, one of them with special needs. And when the youngest one was an infant, her husband decided uh, that he didn't want to take care of that anymore, and so he was out of the picture. So what Terry did was, she worked a full-time job, put herself through nursing school, traversed a, a nursing career, took care of a child with special needs who still lives with her to this day, and sent the other four off as functional adults who took care of themselves in the world. And this is the time when we all look in the mirror and say, what's my excuse, <laughs> right? Uh, We've, have you ever felt like other people are depending on me? Have you ever felt the pressure of that, other people counting on you? Have you ever felt like, uh, have you ever lost a job or worried, been worried that you might lose a job? Uh, ever been worried that the future keeps coming and I don't really have a plan for it? Uh, okay, so those are just some of the big ways that money influences our thinking, maybe causes some stress in our life. Never mind the dozens and dozens of little ways that it influences our decisions uh, every day, uh, both good and bad. According to a study done by Northwestern Mutual, their big uh, financial and insurance corporation, uh, half of Americans, just about half of Americans say finance, finances are the number one source of stress in their life. Now that's sort of a reality of how, where we live. So let's just do a test. You can raise your hand for this one. Have you ever felt any kind of stress because of money? I certainly have. Okay, that is the overwhelming majority of us in the room. Uh, money is a huge factor in our lives. The good news is the Bible says a ton about it, and if we'll adjust both our hearts and our behavior towards God's design, we can win with money and be free from its grip uh, if we'll adjust our, our behavior and our hearts. Now, I know that's not always easy, right? The behavior part's kind of difficult. If I could get the guy in the mirror to behave, I'd be both rich and skinny, uh, <laughs> but it's not as easy as it sounds. So, so we're just gonna, we're gonna take some baby steps. Uh, but I want to give you some preliminary information, because uh, this is going to take us a few weeks, and there's some things you should know. Number one is, uh, we're almost six years into Center Church. Our, our sixth birthday will be next month. And I have, uh, with one exception, avoided talking about money at every turn. Okay? We were at the Global Leadership Summit, a few of us from the, the church were this week. And there was a guy who talked about, he was talking about generational relations. And uh, I'm a Gen Xer, I'm, uh, depending whose chart you use, I could be a millennial on some, but I just lean into the Gen X uh, generation, I think for obvious reasons. Oh, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, anyway, yes, yes, he talked about how uh, Gen Xers are super skeptical. And uh, I think one reason why is because my generation grew up in an era where some very prominent members of faith, I like to call them this particular group of people, morons, decided they were going to use God's name to try and get rich, and some of them were very high profile. And so I have, for as long as I've been a pastor, really tried to avoid associating myself with that. But I realize a couple of things right now. Uh, the generations on either side of me, the boomers and the millennials, are not as skeptical as my generation. Uh, good on you. 
so I can let it go, but also it's my responsibility because the Bible says a ton about money. So we're going to go there. And I also realize that if someone has distrust, that's actually because of them, not me. So, uh, so we're going to go there. That's the first thing I want you to know. The second thing that's probably related, and this is probably, you know, just my, uh, my little caveat to that, is that I'm not going to ask you for any money. So if you're just waiting for that shoe to drop, don't, it's not going to. Uh, so don't let yourself be distracted by that. At no point in the conversation am I going to ask you for money. We will talk about the biblical principle of the tithe at some point. But what you do about with it, that's totally up to you. Uh, so, so we don't have to worry about that. And then the last thing that I want you to know that's most important is that the biblical money principles really are not about money. They're about your heart and they're about hope. That's, that's what the biblical principles about money are. However, even though they are internal, they're about your heart and they're about hope. Uh, if you apply them, they have practical outcomes. Uh, you can win with money by doing it God's way. And so I'm really excited about this. If you're a millennial or a zillennial, we got some of those up here, uh, you should pay attention uh, because if you do it God's way, you're going to be so far ahead. And when I'm old, you can take care of me because you'll have the money to do it. Uh, if you want to win with money, if you want to see God's provision in your life, uh, if you want to see God's principle of multiplication in your life, or if you just don't have a plan and you know you need one, uh, I want to encourage you to be engaged over the next few weeks because we're going to talk about some useful principles. So I'm excited about it. Here we go. Last Sunday, I was in Puyallup, Washington. I spoke at a church there. Puyallup's just outside of Seattle to the south, if you're not uh, familiar with it. And the conversation that we were having was about hope, specifically. Uh, we opened up to Luke 24. And as I was talking, uh, of course, I knew we were going to talk about finances here in subsequent weeks. It occurred to me that hope is really ground zero for our attitude about money. And so I thought, you know what, this is really a great place for us to start. And so that's where we're going to be is in Luke 24. If you, if you have a Bible handy or a device, uh, if not, you can just follow along on the screen. I like to go with, um, with the tactile paper Bible whenever I'm in church. Uh, this is kind of a sidebar, but, but here's the reason why. Uh, because when someone says something that I feel like might be important to me, I just write it down. I just write it right in my Bible. Because I know I could take notes on my device if I was, you know, a hipster. Uh, but I'm going to upgrade this in a year. Someday the iPhone's going to go away, and this is going to go with me to my grave. So that's why I like to hang on to those. Oh, I just got a text message. God bless technology right there. Uh, so I want to encourage you to, to have that with you as much as possible. Luke 24 is where we're going to be. All right. In generations past, uh, a lot of young ladies got one of these. A hope chest. Does anyone here own an actual hope chest? Anyone given one? Okay, so, so a few of you. It's probably not as common in recent generations uh, as it used to be. My wife has one. Uh, it's in our garage collecting dust, so a lot of hope in there. Uh, <laughs> the idea of the hope chest was that a young lady would get this for a significant or uh, momentous occasion in their life. Maybe when they became a teenager or 16th birthday, 18th birthday, graduation something significant and what they would do with it is they would put significant items in it like say uh, family heirlooms or mementos of their childhood or uh, valuables basically she would put in there things that she wanted to keep in her home in the future and the idea was that these are the things I want to pass on to subsequent generations to my own kids to nieces and nephews to other family members. It's called a hope chest because it's a place of safekeeping for her hopes for the future. The things that go in that represent her personal hope for her own life. Now, 
all of us have a hope chest somewhere. A few of you have an actual hope chest, but all of us have a place where we're storing up our hope for the future. Uh, maybe you got a project, a secret project that you're working on somewhere for a product you want to develop or, or a design for the house that you want to build someday. Or maybe your hope chest is in the recesses of your mind. Maybe it's a, a picture of what your retirement might look like. All of us have a hope chest somewhere, some place in our lives where we're storing up our hopes and aspirations for the future. And I actually brought some things uh, that might represent some of our hopes with me, so we'll see if uh, any of you can relate to some of these. Uh, surely, surely many of you will relate to this one, the piggy bank. Uh, a lot of us, probably all of us to some degree, have our hopes for the future right here in, uh, in financial matters. Uh, have you ever had this kind of a thought that if I just get to a certain financial level, then I'll be okay? If I just get to like this much in my 401k, then I know I'm fine for the rest of my life. I'll be at peace and things will be smooth sailing. Or have you ever thought, if I just made X amount per hour, I just got to this wage, then I'd be good. Then I'd be happy. Then I'll have what I need or this much annually. Um, I have learned as an adult that finances are a real ebb and flow. Have you noticed that? Uh, years ago, when I first got out of, uh, when I first got out of, high school. Um, I had what was a really good job, certainly for that stage of my life, someone who lived with their parents and had no responsibilities. Um, and I started paying into a 401k. I was like 19, 20 years old. Um, not because I was financially responsible, but because somebody said it was a good idea. So I started, you know, putting a little bit in there. And uh, I just worked there for a couple of years. I didn't put a lot of money in there. But, uh, but then I left and I did what statistics say about three quarters of you have done at your job. I left the job and just left the money in the 401k. I just didn't pay any attention to it. Well, earlier this year, I thought to myself, I know that's still there. By the way, if you have done that, it's still your money. You can go get it at any time. That's just total sidebar. It's nothing to do with my message. All you need to do is call them and say, where is this money? It's still yours. Uh, so I did that. I was like, yeah, I should probably take some responsibility for that. I haven't been paying into it for like 16, 17 years. And uh, so I contacted the secretary and she was like, yeah, what are you doing? You should have taken care of this a long time. Yeah, I know. Just tell me where to get it. Okay. So I contact the financial advisor and they send me a little report. It's got a chart of what's happened to the money. And it went like this. It was a graph. It went like this. Kind of looked like this, right? And what I learned as I was looking at this chart is that uh, if I'm going to put my hope in this 401k, markets are going to go up, markets are going to go down. They're going to go up, they're going to go down. And I realized in that moment, I thought it was such a great picture that if I'm going to put my hope or I'm going to fill up my hope chest, uh, for the future with my financial situation, I better be ready to ride the roller coaster because it's going to be some serious ups and downs. And I wonder if I do that, if I'm putting my hope in as secure a place as I think I am. Maybe, maybe not. How about this one? This, this is a good one. Uh, this one's making a reappearance. Uh, how about one of this? You remember a time when you got an award? I know, if you've been around for a while, you're like, dude, why do you keep bringing that same dumb trophy? And as I've mentioned before, I don't have any others. This is the only trophy I ever had, uh, I ever got. I had a chance to win this same tournament again, but as Pastor Rick can tell you, he hit a terrible shot in the playoff and cost us the tournament. Am I right, Norm? Norm was there. So uh, Norm's got one of these too. Yeah, it's, it's not that special. There's a bunch of people that have them. Uh, did you ever get an award for like uh, an academic, academic accomplishment? 
or maybe in sports, or maybe you sing, maybe you did music, or maybe you were in dance. Uh, maybe you got recognized in the job place somewhere, or uh, some civic duty you got an award for. You got some kind of recognition for a job well done, and it feels good, doesn't it? It feels good to have other people go, that's an achiever. Way to go. You did a good job. Uh, we all need affirmation. It's helpful. Uh, it's encouraging to all of us. But here's what I've learned about establishing a reputation as a high achiever. There's a reward for that. You know what the reward is? Once you establish the reputation as a high achiever, you get the privilege of spending the rest of your life working and working and working and working to try and maintain that reputation as a high achiever. Uh, and I wonder if putting that in my hope chest isn't more exhausting than it's worth. Could be, maybe not. Oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. Uh, you wouldn't believe how hard it is to find a wooden heart. Do you remember a time when you fell in love? You just, you just met that person and you just, you just wanted their approval more than you wanted air. Remember that? Uh, and, and you just thought, man, I met the perfect person. I can't believe it. And then maybe you got married and you found out, actually, they're not the perfect person. They're a very regular person. Uh, the good news is they found that out about you too, so it's not all on them. Uh, I have learned as an adult, just by way of being on the planet for four decades, that other people can't handle the weight of all of my hope. Uh, it turns out it's not a fair place for them, for me to put my hope. And sometimes what we end up doing is we meet Miss Wright or Mr. Wright, uh, and then that doesn't work out and we meet another Mr. Wright, Mr. Wright, Miss Wright, and, and it ends up that I can't put my hope in that, I can't put that in my hope chest, count on people to leave me fulfilled because it's just not fair to them. They can't handle all of that weight. I'm of the mindset that most of us are pretty simple. Most of us, we don't want the world. For most of us, if we had the opportunity to rule the world, we wouldn't take it. That's more, that's more than I want. I think what most of us want uh, is the chance to live a good life and share it with some people that we care about. Uh, you know, if you can throw in a new car here and there, that's great. Um, you know, some of Brandon's chicken wings, I could get on board with that, but I'm simple. I don't want the whole world. I just, I want to live a good life and share it with some people that I care about. I think that's where most of us are at. And so what happens is, especially when we're young, uh, those of you who are like me, not as young anymore, you remember what it's like to be young and optimistic and the world is your playground because everything is someday. I'm going to do all of that someday. And so we make our plans and we set off in pursuit of what of our own version of a good life, what that looks like. We got our plan, and then things start to go awry. I don't recommend quoting Mike Tyson, former heavyweight champion, champion ever, except one time he accidentally said something profound. He said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. All right? You set off in life in pursuit of your version of a good life, and then life sneaks up on you. You know, maybe the job doesn't pan out or the education doesn't pan out or the person you thought would be with you through thick and thin is nowhere to be found. Maybe a health issue derails your plan. A whole bunch of different possibilities. Most of us aren't looking for the world. We just want our own version of the good life. But sometimes even that seems impossible. Okay, and I told you we we're going to come to Luke 24. All of that sets the scene for two guys in Luke 24 who are in that exact same spot. A couple of guys whose plans for the future have just been crushed. Happens about 48 hours after Jesus is crucified. It's Resurrection Sunday. He's alive, but they don't know. They haven't found out yet. 
They thought Jesus was the one who was going to restore our peace and our prosperity, and now he's gone, and our hopes for the future have been crushed. So Luke 24, verse 13, this is what it says. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Seven miles. Karen, you're pretty active. You like to get out and walk. How long would you say it takes to walk seven miles? Get ballparking. An hour? Okay. Karen's a lot thriftier than the rest of us. Uh, probably going to take somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple hours, right? I shouldn't have asked her because she's in way better shape than all the rest of us. So uh, probably a couple hours, right? It's going to be a little while. It's not a short walk, surmise it to say. So they're on this walk to Emmaus. Verse 14 says, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So they're on a lengthy walk, about seven miles, talking about everything that had happened lamenting the loss of hope. Jesus was just crucified. I can't believe we just put our our hope in that guy. Now we look like idiots. Now everyone is turned against us. We, you know, we abandoned all these other things to go follow him. Now what are we going to do? They're lamenting what had happened. Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with him, with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, there's a condition that's referred to as face blindness, where um, it's not a vision problem, it's a cognitive problem, where you're, you can see someone that you know and should recognize, but your brain doesn't make the connection. Uh, it's actually a real condition. How frustrating would that be? Probably for everyone else. Uh, but, but it is a real condition. I don't think that's what's happening. I think Jesus is supernaturally keeping them from recognizing him, him, him because he's not ready for that yet. But in any case... He comes up and joins them, and they don't know it's him. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Hey, guys, what you talking about? They stood still with their faces downcast. Okay, you got to get, you got to get a picture of this, okay? Uh, Micah, you be Jesus, okay? And uh, when I come walking by, uh, uh, you ask me, hey, what, what are you guys talking about? Okay, you ready? Go. Hey, what are you talking about? What does his face say? Yeah. This is, what it, this is what that face says, okay? One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Okay, this is what that face says. What are you saying right now? Are you the only person who, have you been under a rock for the last two days? Yeah, kind of. Right? That's, that's, they're, they're like scolding Jesus and they don't even know. Uh, and some people say the Bible's not funny. They're wrong. Verse 19. Huh, what things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Now pay close attention to what they say next. Verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was gonna change our situation. We'd hoped that he was the one who was gonna redeem our people. And he was the one who was gonna set us free from our oppressors and restore our prosperities. And now he's gone, he's six feet under and our hopes are pushing up daisies right alongside of him. These guys have lost hope. Have you ever lost hope? That is a scary place to be. Uh, As many of you know, Proverbs says that hope lost makes the heart 
sick. And isn't that true? Have you ever been hoping for something? Uh, if you've ever gone a lengthy time without a job and you had a lead and you were hoping that it came together and then it didn't, you know that feeling of losing hope. That's where these guys are at. I bet that if I started a sentence, but, we, but I had hoped, almost everybody here could finish that sentence from your own experience. It truly does make a hope, make the heart sick. A lot of us could look back at, a, at something in our life, a, a marriage or an education or a job or something that had gone wrong. Um, I hoped that this would be my dream job. We'd hoped that this would be our forever home. We'd hoped that the cancer was gone. We'd hoped that our marriage would be restored. Uh, we could probably all finish that sentence from our own experience, and that's where these guys are at. Now, Jesus, of course, is very tender and uh, very compassionate and empathetic, and so he responds to them in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are, okay, uh, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? He says, didn't Jesus tell you what the prophets already said hundreds of years ago that, that this was going to happen? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So they're on this walk, seven miles. They got some time together. And Jesus starts to teach them, going all the way back in Jewish history to Moses, how all of the prophets said, this is exactly what was going to happen. And even Jesus himself said, this is exactly what was going to happen. And he had two hours to explain it. And aren't you glad I don't have that kind of energy right now? So they get to the village. Jesus has explained to them that this is exactly what the prophets said would happen. They've gotten to know each other. It's late in the day. Uh, you know, in that time, you know, it was not safe to be out traveling at night. And so it was fairly common for people to invite people that they didn't know very well into their home to stay with them. So they invite Jesus in to stay with them. And verse 30 says this, when he was at the table with them, he broke bread, gave thanks, broke it, and he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Now, something interesting happens right here. What might they have seen when Jesus gave them the bread that they didn't see before? His hands with nail scars that, are, that have been pierced. And verse 31 says, then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So after dinner, they're pretty wiped out. They just saw Jesus as resurrected. So they're like, yeah, we'll go back in the morning. Of course, that's not what happened. They immediately got up and went directly back to Jerusalem. I'm guessing it took a little bit less than two hours to get there. Verse 33 says, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 who, and those with them assembled together saying, it's true, the Lord has risen. He has appeared to Simon. If you read earlier in Luke's gospel, uh, Peter, Simon, had already been to the empty tomb before. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Uh, I'm guessing that trip was quick and they ran into the room. I, I picture it this way. Guys, we saw him. Remember he said that this was going to happen? And it's true. This was God's plan all along. We saw his hands. He's alive. And it turns out that we placed our hope in the right place after all. Have you ever got the call that said, hey, you got the job? 
And you know the feeling when the hope tank is suddenly full again? Can you imagine how these guys felt? Jesus is alive. The great feeling that must have that must have just rushed over them to have their disappointment and despair about the future suddenly replaced with hope again. Peter, who was there on that day, uh, he went on to uh, be a missionary in a vast, uh, a vast range of places. And this is what he said in one of his letters, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. He's given us new birth into a living hope. The New Testament uses the word hope 71 times. One time before the resurrection, 70 after the resurrection. Uh, I'm no math genius, uh, but it turns out, according to the New Testament, that our hope is actually in the resurrected Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, our sins are paid for, and we've been given the right to be called the children of God. What does that have to do with money? Everything and nothing at the same time. Uh, Because if we're children of God, doesn't that change our view of uh, where our provision comes from and where our hope is in? Only through Jesus does God become our eternal father. And he's never going to change. He's never going to get old. He's never going to stop paying attention to your needs. He's not going to get tired. He's not going to give up on you. Jesus has finished that work and paid that bill in full. We have a living hope that's guaranteed by our heavenly father. So here's the big idea. This is kind of our jumping off point to eventually talk about biblical finance. That money is really a resource for us to steward, but our Heavenly Father is our provider. Our hope is knowing that He will provide everything we need in order to fulfill His will for our lives. Uh, An example of that is found in Luke chapter 21, just shortly before this, uh, where Jesus and His disciples are at the synagogue, and uh, this is what it says in Luke 21, verse 1. It says, As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, regardless of the amount, there's something really significant Uh, that this widow did that I think we can all learn from and we can all do well to emulate. What she did more than put two coins in a box was she had abandoned her hope in money and embraced her hope wholly in her heavenly father. She had abandoned the idea that this money is somehow going to take care of me and make me happy and bring me peace. And she had decided my hope is squarely in my heavenly father. That's, that's what we can learn from her. That's where her freedom was, not in being poor or being wealthy, but in placing her hope squarely in her heavenly father. So I'm going to ask the band to come, and we're going to sing a couple songs before we go, just in response to who God is, uh, knowing that he is our provider, he is our, our hope, and then next week we're going to get practical. Uh, we're going to talk about what does the Bible say about money uh, God knows that money's a big deal here on earth. He made the place. Uh, that's not news to him. He knows that you have to have it to do stuff. Uh, but if you care about having hope, uh, if you care about seeing God glorify himself and 
do incredible things in your life, financially and otherwise. Uh, if you care about winning with money and you want to do it God's way, I want to encourage you to follow along with that. So would you stand with me? Uh, I'm going to pray that God would teach us what it means to put our hope in Him. Uh, Lord, thank you that you have a plan for every detail of our lives, including our financial situa situations. Uh, you know that uh, money is really significant to all of us, whether we have a lot or a little. Um, it's a factor for all of us. And so, um, God, I pray that you would teach us what it means to, to keep you squarely on the throne of our hearts, uh, to know that you are our provider uh, in all things, to know that you have accounted for us here in this life, that surely your goodness and your mercy will follow us every day and everywhere we go, and that someday, because of your son Jesus, when this life is over, we will dwell in your house forever. And we will never be without because of you. In Jesus' name, amen.